Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter, the end of chapter 2. Jenny and Harper, thank you so much. What a great job this morning. Thank you. And Cindy, we're so blessed by the music, so thank you all. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to look at a question that Paul asked that we looked at last week. We're going to go into chapter 3 and get the answer to this question. But I want to start by asking you, do you are there ever times that you feel inadequate? There were things that are in front of you you're thinking, I can't do that. Now, what's worse is when you get to the point where you realize you can't do it now, but you used to could do it. Anything, anybody can identify with that? I have an amen. And that's when it really starts making you mad. And one reason it makes us mad is we've been raised to be what? We've been raised to be self-sufficient. I'm hoping today to talk you through some of the teaching we've had on self-sufficiency. We certainly want our children to grow up and be self-sufficient. But the title of today's message is God-sufficient. And if you've ever struggled with your Christian walk, or if you've ever struggled with the ministry that God's called you to, whether it's simply just sharing your faith with somebody, I think the reason we struggle is because we're still self-sufficient. I think in every case for me, the times that I've said to God, I can't do that, all the fingers were pointing at me. And I got good news for you this morning. God's called every one of you to ministry if you're a child of God. If you're not a believer yet, He's calling you to faith in Him. But once you come to faith in Him, He's got something for you to do. He doesn't want you to be a pew potato, just taking up space on Sunday morning. He's got a ministry for you. And you can't do it. How does that make you feel? <laughs> well, shoot, preacher, what? I'm called to something I can't do. No, and I've got good news. You're not supposed to do it in your strength. And I hear that. Amen. When I was in my early days in youth ministry, I don't know why I picked this number, but I said, I'm going to come up with seven common characteristics, common characteristics of people in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that God used. And so I started studying the Old Testament. I studied the New Testament. I looked at people like, you know, Moses and Abraham and David and Ruth and Esther and Jonah and Jeremiah. I looked at the disciples. I looked at the Apostle Paul. And when I started looking at their life, I found out these guys, these women, weren't all perfect. Some of them were murderers. Some of them were adulterers. Some of them were liars. Some of them, the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul before he came to faith in Christ. What did he do for a living? He persecuted Christians. And then you ask the question, why did God pick some of the people he picked? Well, he's God. And so I thought, okay, I can't come up with seven, so I'll come up with three. That's a good sermon, right? Three points. Most of my sermons have three points. I'm just going to come up with three good common characteristics of people in Scripture that God used. And I, I couldn't come up with three. I came up with one. It's in Second Chronicles. We're in Second Corinthians. This is going to confuse you. Old Testament, Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, says this. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So if you don't get anything else out of the message today, it's this. Here's what God's looking for in men and women that he uses. He's looking for people whose heart is completely his. He doesn't always pick the best looking. He doesn't always pick the best athlete. He doesn't always pick the best highly skilled. 
Here's who he picks. He picks those whose heart is completely his. In fact, sometimes the reason he has to pick those people is the people that are the best looking and the highly skilled and the athletic and the charismatic, sometimes they're still self-reliant. God can't use them until they're broken to the place where his, their heart is completely his. And I love what the word strongly support means. It means repair, strengthen, fortify. Here's the bottom line. God's looking. God's looking for men and women of all ages who've come to faith in Him. He's looking for people to use in ministry. And here's the one thing He's looking for. He's looking for people who've said, God, you've got my heart. My heart is completely yours. But let me read the passage. I'm going to start with the end of verse 16 of chapter 2 because here's where we left off last week. And you know when Scripture was written... Paul didn't write chapters and verses. Paul wrote a letter. To make it readable, somebody came after him and said, let's put this in chapters and verses so that when preachers preach, they can tell everybody where they are. So here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 16, the end of that verse. And who is adequate for these things? What things is he talking about? He's talking about what he's just talked about. He's talking about the fact that as a believer... You're a witness for Christ in the world. In fact, he said, we're a sweet aroma. And some of you are saying, yeah, there's some people with aroma on my pew right now. No, we're a sweet aroma. <laughs> to those who are perishing, it's an aroma of death. To those who are believers, it's an aroma of life. So who's adequate for that? Who's adequate to live that kind of life? Well, good question, Paul. Fortunately, he's going to answer it in the next chapter. Then he says, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That's where we ended last week. And, and I had a great illustration about my Rolex watch in Mexico. I'm not going, to, not going to share that with you. But I will remind you of what the word peddling the word of God means. It means a huckster. It means somebody who's trying to convince you to buy a cheap imitation of the real thing. Those people were prevalent in Paul's day. In fact, part of what Paul speaks to the whole letter of 2 Corinthians is to speak to these false teachers who've come in and attacked him. And they did it because they wanted to have the place of teacher in the Corinthian church because they wanted something out of it. They were hucksters. They were trying to sell something. And I started thinking last night, I took out a yellow legal pad, and I thought, okay, in the 21st century, what do these people look like? What are the marks of hucksters, people who are peddling the Word of God? And I just started making a list, and it got way too long. So I narrowed it down. You're, you'll be thankful for that. I'm going to just give you a few marks. Here's what to look for. Number one, they're only concerned with making the sale. That's not just preachers. It could be anybody that says, you know, I'm, I'm going to do ministry for God this way. I'm going to, I'm going to close the deal. I'm going to make the sale. Folks, when we share Christ with people, it's not our responsibility to close the deal or make the sale. Whose responsibility is that? That's God. So what happens if they reject the message? They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. What happens if they accept the message? They're not accepting us. They're accepting God. So whose responsibility is it? It's our responsibility just to be faithful to share. The results are up to God. You've done your part if you've been obedient and done what God told you to do. 
You don't have to close the deal. Secondly, these hucksters willingly compromise the truth. If you ever hear somebody on TV, the radio, or in person that says something as if it's from God and yet it contradicts the Bible, guess what they are? They're a heretic. They're a huckster. They're peddling the Word of God. Third, they place style over substance. I was at a men's conference in Atlanta on a busload of men from North Carolina. And we were all at this conference together. And we got back on the bus. And everybody was talking about this one particular preacher at the conference. And they said, Robert, didn't you? Wasn't he great? And I said, what did he say? And nobody could remember really anything he said. I said, so here's the deal. He said nothing really well. And, and for some reason, we're impressed with that. People that have this style, this flair, this charisma. They're on television. They're on the radios. They're in pulpits across America. Be careful for people to put style over substance. If, if the message doesn't have any meat, what's the point? What was that, number three? Four. They don't live what they say they believe. Now, we're all guilty at times of preaching the gospel and then messing up. That's not what I'm talking about. The habit of their life is they've got this public persona. But their life doesn't reflect that at all. They talk more about themselves than God. Now, there's times all of us use personal illustrations, but if that's the only message you get from men or women that are sharing the gospel... They're more interested in drawing attention to themselves than they are to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, some of you have already painted a picture in your mind. You say, I, I think I know who he's talking about. <laughs> so let me be careful. In a, in a crowd this size, there's some of you thinking, he's, he's talking about those contemporary churches. I just want to say, if you're offended by contemporary music, you realize the music from hymn books used to be contemporary. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? Even though it was written in the 1700s, in the 1700s, it was new. And some of these new songs are good. Some of them aren't. Some of the hymns are great, great theology, deep theology. I like both. So I'm not talking about that. In fact, here's the question I want you to ask. Have they changed the method or the message? You know what I'm saying there? I'm okay with somebody changing the method to reach people for Christ. The problem is when you change the message. Because the message is the same. Jesus Christ came to earth, God in flesh, lived a perfect life. After close to 33 years on earth, died on the cross, was buried, rose on the third day. He conquered death and sin at the cross. At the cross conquered sin, at the grave conquered death. He is alive. And through faith in Him, we can be alive forever. We can be forgiven. So if you change that message, you're a huckster. You're peddling the Word of God and you've got to ask, what's the motivation for that? Well, for some people it is to make a name for themselves. It's to be notorious. It may be for money. When I first told my mom I was thinking about going into ministry, she said, there's no money in that. She really discouraged me. But, man, we've seen some TV preachers, haven't we? 
that fly around in jets and live in multi-million dollar houses. Apparently, there's no business like soul business in some circles. So here's a question I want you to ask for the hucksters. Are they using a new method for the same message? Then okay. It may not be your style of music. It may not be your style of preaching. But if they've kept the message, then I'm all right. If they've changed the message, it doesn't matter what kind of music they're playing. It doesn't matter what the backdrop is. They're hucksters. They're peddling the Word of God for some purpose. And what does Paul say? We don't do that. We speak from sincerity, literally purity or clearness. We speak as from God. We speak the word. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul recognized, hey, my audience is not you. My audience is God. And so then Paul moves into chapter 3 to answer really the question, who's adequate for these things? And he talks about the commendation for ministry. Paul's saying, the next three verses, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need some as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says, are we commending ourselves? Literally, are we introducing this favorable introduction? Are we... Are we bringing with us letters? And and Paul is specifically addressing the false teachers who were able to bring letters from other churches that said, hey, accept these guys. Let them in. Here's the problem. What they were doing is, if you're a huckster, you can fake it for a while. So what you do is stay at a church a short period of time and then leave, go to the next church and say, hey, could you write me a letter of recommendation? And they don't know any better. They're like, yeah, they, they, you know, Sometimes we we mistake enthusiasm for depth in Christ. So they write him a letter. They get over here. And so Paul's saying, I don't need that kind of letter. I was with you 18 months. God reminded me this week when I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and then God led me. I, I, it was definitely a God thing, but I started a ministry called Rock Solid Ministries. And for 10 years I traveled and primarily spoke to students, to, to youth groups. And I asked some advice of people that I said, you know, what I need to do to get established, they said, get a really good-looking brochure. Well, first mistake I made was put my picture right on the front of it. If you, if you ever find one of these, it's a bad picture. And I went to a youth pastor's conference in Atlanta, Georgia in 96. And I walked into a room full of hundreds of youth pastors, and in the back of the room there were tables where you could display your brochures and sell things and that kind of stuff. And as soon as I walked through the door with my 500 brochures that I was very proud of, I had quotes from people saying things about me. Really, They didn't know me that well. And I kind of felt this tap on my shoulder of God saying, what are you doing? God convicted me at that moment. What you're doing with these brochures that you're so proud of is you're trying to sell yourself. Who's called you to ministry? And i got to tell you something. There were, everybody else in the room that had brochures back there, it wasn't a problem for them. It was a problem for me. I, had, I stepped back out and took my brochures back up to my room, just left them in there and came back and did the conference. 
because I was scared to death. If I didn't get my name out there, I was going to starve to death. And God said, I'll take care of you. I'll get you opportunities to speak where I want you to speak. You don't have to be the huckster selling, peddling the gospel. And that's basically what Paul's saying. I don't need a letter commending me to you. You've watched me for 18 months. You ought to know me by now. And yet he was being attacked by these false teachers who had their letters. I coached baseball before moving here nearly 15 years ago. As part of my ministry, I helped coach a baseball team. And I was the assistant coach of a high school baseball team that ended up winning the state championship our third year. I coached the first year, coached the second year. The third year, they had a new policy at the school, so I had to fill out this form, and it was asking me on the form, give some references of people that have seen you coach. And I had a bad attitude about filling the form out. I was kind of cocky. <laughs> I was turning this into the athletic director, so I put down there, well, if you ever came to the games, you could be one of my references. I don't know how he received that. <laughs> the point I was trying to make is, you're the athletic director. Why don't you show up at one of our games? Then you don't need me to fill this form out. And in a sense, that's kind of what Paul's saying. Hey, you've been in the game with me for 18 months. You know I don't have to bring you a letter. Now, was Paul against letters? Let me share a couple of verses with you to show you how these things were used in the first century in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 3. It says, Paul, still breathing, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul had used letters in the past. In Acts 18, and when he wanted to cross into Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Why did Paul initially need letters from other Christians? I mean, think about it. Everybody heard about Paul. If Paul shows up at your church and all you knew about Paul was he's the guy that used to come into church and, dra and drag Christians out kicking and screaming bound to Jerusalem, and he shows up and says, well, here's our guest preacher for the day, Saul. <laughs> People are going to start sneaking out. Hope he prays so we can all close our eyes because I'm out of here. So, yeah, initially Paul had a letter that would go and say, hey, you can trust this guy. He's been converted. He's had an incredible conversion experience, with, and he's a legitimate, authentic Christian. What Paul's saying is now, I don't have to have that anymore. You know me. So don't listen to these people that say, where's Paul's credentials? He said, you're our letter. He said, it's written on our hearts. I don't have to carry something around in my pocket that's a letter from you or a letter to you. You've been written on our hearts. I take you everywhere I go. He says, it's been manifested, it's been brought to light, it's on public display, that you're our letter, cared for by us. I love the word there. It literally means service. It's the word deacon. It's where we get deacon from. It means a table waiter or a servant leader. Paul says, the reason you're a letter for us is we've served among you. We cared for you. It's not written with ink. Listen, human words are ink on a paper. They're silent. They're really dead, and anybody can write those. But the Spirit of the living God can write more than just ink on a white page. And that's what Paul's saying. It's not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, 
What's he referring to? He's referring to the Ten Commandments, and he's not nullifying them in any way. Hear me say that. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses, literally written by the finger of God. I love the word tablet there. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. It literally means flat surface. All I could think about was the iPad. I guess the stone that the Ten Commandments, that was the original tablet. I don't think you had to have a screensaver or a protection for it. I mean, it was stone. Of course, Moses broke them initially. But here's the good thing. What we're following in Christ is not laws written on stone tablets. They're now written where? On our hearts. Here's what Jeremiah said, or Jeremiah prophesied for the Lord and said, but this is the covenant. This is Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Isn't that good news? In fact, when the people came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? You know what they were doing? They were saying, listen, there's hundreds of commandments that we've imposed upon ourselves. We took the Ten Commandments and some other commandments from the Old Testament, and we've added to it. And we can't keep all of those. So just give us one or two. Maybe we can keep those, and by doing so, we'll keep the rest. You know what Jesus said? What's the greatest commandment? He basically said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If you take the Ten Commandments, that sums it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, then you're going to honor him. You're not going to take his name in vain. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're not going to lie, commit adultery, kill, steal. And that's now been written on our heart as believers. So that's Paul's commendation for ministry. Last, his confidence in ministry. As I said at the beginning, none of us are adequate. So if we look at our own ability, and that's our natural tendency, if we sense God's called us to do something, what did Moses say? When, Moses, when God said to Moses, you're going to go down to Egypt, and you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, what did Moses say? I wonder, I think the first thing he thought was this, I'm a wanted fugitive from Egypt. He had committed murder. He's been on the run. Forty years have passed. And God says, you've got to go back there. And then Moses said, well, God, you got the wrong guy because I don't even talk well. And he's thinking about Aaron. Aaron would do a much better job at this, God. Have you ever said that to God? God, you got the wrong guy. Who do you think you are to tell God he got the wrong guy? I'm so glad that God doesn't use the people that the world uses because I'd be out of luck. And here's the good news. Let me read these last three verses as we close this morning. Verse 4 through 6. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Such confidence we have, literally reliance or trust through Christ toward God. Paul was basically saying, there is nothing in me that makes me adequate to do what God's called me to do. In fact, he said, I don't consider anything. Literally, I've taken an inventory. The word, the word consider there means to credit to one account, one's account. And Paul said, in my flesh, apart from God, there is nothing on my ledger 
that qualifies me, makes me adequate, makes me sufficient to do anything that God's calling me to. But he has made us adequate. So here's the answer. Are you adequate for what God's called you to do? Yes. He's made us adequate. How? In Christ. You're adequate. You're sufficient. But it's not within yourself. Here's the problem we have in human as humans. If we do something for God and we see it become successful, what do we immediately do? Start claiming credit for it. Start receiving the pats on the back. And then start patting ourselves on the back. And what does God have to remind us sometimes? I was preaching in Needles, California, to a, to a group of churches in that area that were doing this youth uh, conference. We were in a high school in Needles, California. Anybody ever been to Needles, California? So you've been there. Is that clay? What in the world were you doing in Needles, California? We'll talk after the service. Because there ain't nothing in Needles, California except the Colorado River goes through there. That's about the only redeeming thing I could find with Needles, California. But I've been preaching for two or three nights in this auditorium, and, and the last night I was up preaching. And have you ever heard a bad sermon? Some of you are thinking, yeah, today. <laughs> have you ever heard a bad sermon? It's worse when you're hearing a bad sermon, but it's really it's actually worse than that when you're the one preaching it. So I'm preaching this sermon, and people are getting up leaving. And it wasn't the teenagers, it was the adults. There's about 500 people there. About 100 of them got up at various times during my message and just left. So I'm processing all that while I'm preaching. And every night I'd given an invitation. We had a counseling room. And I just I, I kind of gave this half-hearted invitation. And I sat down on the stage, didn't even go to the counseling room. And I was sitting there having a pity party for myself. And here's what God said. I didn't hear an audible voice, but folks, God spoke to me. And he basically said this. Robert, I don't need you, but I want you. That night, 80 teenagers gave their life to Christ. I found out all this after the sermon. The adults who were leaving said the reason we left is because there was a group of satanic worshipers that had circled the high school and were praying against us. So we went out and circled them and were praying for us. And I thought, I didn't know all that. And God's saying, I don't have to let you in on all the details. Just do what I told you to do. See, that night, my adequacy, my sufficiency was me. I thought, I'm a good enough speaker to tell these people what I think God's laid on my heart to tell them. And I can get people to come down the aisle. That night, more people responded when I gave a half-hearted invitation. I had a seminary professor one time say, God can hit a good lick with a crooked stick. And I thought, well, that's good because I'm as crooked of a stick as it gets. So where's our adequacy? It's not in us. You can be trained. You can be skilled. If you ever start thinking in, in Christ your adequacy comes from you, you're in big trouble. But here's what Paul recognized. Our adequacy is from God. We're God adequate, not God sufficient, not self-sufficient. So then I close with this question. Adequate for what? Paul closes and says we're adequate as servants of a new covenant. The old covenant was about the letter of the law. The new covenant is about the grace and the mercy that was demonstrated and poured out on the cross. 
fact, Paul says the letter kills, literally to destroy and kill outright. Paul, same author, over in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, said, Because of by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In Galatians 3.24, same author, Paul said, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we, might, we may be justified by faith. Here's the point of the law in the Old Testament, was to show us how desperately needy we were for a Savior. When Jesus came, did he nullify the law? No, he said, I haven't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so we recognize, God, thank you that I'm not getting to heaven based on how well I kept the law. Why? Because I'm a sinner. But I throw myself upon the grace of God where I come before God and acknowledge I'm a sinner. I haven't kept the law perfectly. I, I done a, I've done okay on a few things, but my the stack, <laughs> the bad stuff's outweighing the, the good stuff. And even if the good stuff outweighed the bad stuff, it doesn't matter. It only takes one sin to make you a sinner. That's why Jesus died on the cross. To pay the penalty for sin. And he rose from the dead. To conquer death. Because apart from him, folks, we die and are separated from God. So our adequacy makes us servants of a new covenant. And here's the good news. We don't have a covenant where we point people back to stone-cold law. We point people to a living Savior who has made us alive with him. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, Thank you that you're not about behavior modification. That we don't come to church just to learn a bunch of rules and then live that week trying to keep as many of them as we could. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy that was poured out on the cross. That Lord, we're, we don't receive what we deserve because you've given us mercy. And, Lord, you've given us what we didn't deserve, and that's grace. Thank you for that. Thank you that our adequacy, our sufficiency is in Christ. So, yes, Lord, you've called us to something. May we be obedient. Not on our own strength, but in your strength. Thank you, in Christ's name.